On this show, we discuss crimes that are often graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Some people look evil. Some people just look ordinary. It's the ordinary ones you need to keep a special eye on. I'm your host, Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. back after what was supposed to be a short season break, but turned out to be a hell of a lot longer than I anticipated. Anyway, here I am. If there is anyone still out there to listen, then marvelous. If I'm just talking to myself, at least I'll know at least one person likes me. That's it for the chit chat. Welcome to episode 35, Evil Less Ordinary. On June 23rd, 2010, Jake DeHaan went to the home of Jeffrey Ryan in Amity, Maine. He went multiple times. The reason? He was looking for Jason DeHaan, his 30-year-old brother. Jason was friends with Jeff Ryan, and Jake thought for sure his brother was going to be there. Jason hadn't come home the previous evening, and Jake was obviously worried about his brother. The third time that he goes to Jeff Ryan's house, he shines his flashlight into the trailer, and what he sees is a large amount of blood. Horrified, he immediately leaves and goes to get his father, Robert. Now, Jason, Jake, and their dad, Robert, all work together. They put in a lot of hours doing constructions in various towns throughout the state of Maine. Jason was also a lover of the outdoors, enjoying hunting and riding ATVs. Jason had three children who he also instilled his love of the great outdoors in. Him being missing would be a big deal to his family. After Jake sees the blood and goes to get his father, they return and the father and son enter the trailer where they find the body of 10-year-old Jesse Ryan. Jesse is the son of the trailer's owner. Robert and Jake immediately leave and call 911. Maine State Police Trooper Carmen Lilly responds to that call. He finds the young boy's body just inside of the trailer and shortly after, another officer gets to the scene and he finds the body of Jeffrey Ryan outside in a shed. An hour and a half into the scene investigation, a third officer arrives and he finds a third body. The body is that of Jason DeHaan and he is found in some bushes on the property. All three of the victims have been stabbed to death. According to his wife, Crystal, Jason had hopped onto his ATV at about 4 p.m. on June 22nd. His original plan was to go the short distance to his parents' house, which was just down Route 1. But instead of doing that, he must have stopped by Ryan's house to visit with his longtime friend. This fatal side trip would result in Jason DeHaan never returning home to his wife and his three children. Children named Skylar, Jake, and Isabella. I think it says a lot about Jason's love for his family that one of his children is also named Jake, the same as his brother. Jason was killed a little over two weeks before he was going to turn 31. Jason's aunt said the following, quote, He was a very, very hard worker. He has worked ever since he was a teenager, and he really did everything with his family. He worked hand-in-hand with his dad and his brother. Where you would see one, you'd see the other two. They all worked 10-hour days and sometimes spent three or four hours on the road to get to and from jobs. 
He loved to do things with his children. They went four-wheeling together. They went swimming and fishing and snowmobiling in the winter. He taught them about the outdoors. He showed them how much he loved it, and they loved being with him, end quote. The aunt did go on to say that despite the trauma the family has experienced, they are beyond grateful that Skylar, Jason's nine-year-old daughter, wasn't with him. Apparently, she almost always went with her dad when he went out on the ATV. Can you imagine that? There could have potentially been four victims, two of them children. Former Deputy Chief Medical Examiner testified that all three victims died as a result of multiple sharp force injuries, and Jason's throat had been cut. 55-year-old Jeffrey Ryan's pickup was found three days later in Weston. It was found burnt. So now this small town in Maine has a killer on the loose, and the shock of the triple homicide isn't buffered at all by some big line of suspects. Police in the beginning have absolutely no suspects. And maybe here is something the police didn't handle as well as they might have. Jamie Merrill, who was Jeffrey Ryan's ex-wife and Jesse's mother, was told about the murder, but the police basically gave her no details. Little Jesse was living primarily with his mother at this time. She, of course, begs the police to find whoever did this, but she also wants to know what happened to her little boy. She had to go online, and this is how she found out that her 10-year-old son had been brutally stabbed to death. Jamie was six months pregnant at the time, and the impact of not only her son dying, but how he died, was so traumatic that she had to be rushed to the hospital. I really can't even imagine what she must have been going through. Now, here is where the water gets a bit muddy, for me at least. I googled and googled and googled to find out why exactly. 20-year-old Thane Ormsby became a suspect that they focused on in the first place. I know why they settle on him, which I'll talk about in a minute, but there isn't any specific thing I can find that identifies that one magical reason. The closest I could get to an answer is this. Jeffrey Ryan had an ex-girlfriend named Tamara Strout. Her parents, Robert and Joy Strout, lived in Orient, Maine, and they had some animosity towards Jeffrey Ryan for whatever reason. I'm assuming the breakup was bad or something along those lines. So at the time of the murder, Thane Ormsby was living with the Strouts. That's it. That's the only connection. And this is me speculating. So they're looking for possible suspects. There is this ex-girlfriend and living with that ex-girlfriend's parents who don't like Ryan. There happens to be this 20-year-old guy who is new to the area, living with people who don't like Ryan. Here we are now with a suspect. Prior to identifying Thane, police have fingerprints and some DNA from the crime scene. So if they do find a suspect, they will have something to compare it to. The investigators find out that Thane moved into the area just a few weeks before the triple murder. Maine State Police Detectives Keegan and Stoudemire interview Thane in Dover, New Hampshire on June 29th. Thane admits he's heard about the killings in Amity. He, at some point, tells them, yes, he has been at Jeffrey Ryan's place, but that was two weeks before the murders. Thane agrees to sit down in the detective's car near the uh, apartment or the house he is staying at. They record the interview, which lasts about an hour. Thane agrees to give them his fingerprints and a DNA sample, and at that time also consents to a second interview if it's needed. They take him for fingerprinting at the Dover station and then take him back. 
when Detective Keegan is dropping him off, he comes right out and asks Thane, did you do this? Thane says, no, he did not. Keegan follows that denial up with something to the effect that if you didn't have anything to do with it, then you've got nothing to worry about. But if you did do it, I'm going to get you and prove you did. On July 2nd, the detectives return unannounced for a second interview. The motivation for this is because they've matched Thane's DNA and fingerprints to the crime scene. And there was a problem with inconsistencies in Thane's story from the first interview. All of this combined meant they had enough to arrest him. Keegan, Stoudemire, and another Dover officer go to the apartment, which is where Thane was staying with Strout's son. Thane isn't there. There are other cops in the area at the time as well. There's some question as to whether or not maybe Thane saw them. Um, needless to say, it isn't too long before Thane does show up. Thane agrees to another interview, and this time he also agrees to go to the station with them. At this point, the detectives do not tell Thane that the fingerprints and the, the DNA he'd given them just a few days ago match those from the crime scene. While still at the apartment, Thane empties his pockets, and while he's doing this, Keegan tells him he is not under arrest and that he can bring his stuff with him. They also tell him he doesn't have to meet with the detectives if he doesn't want to. Thane still agrees to go with them and is taken to the ground floor of the City Hall building and into an interview room. I'm going to tell you right now, we got dumped on with a whole lot of snow in Indiana and there are snow plows and people out snow blowing. So if you hear bizarre noises in the background, that is it. So anyways, back to Keegan. Keegan, once they get to the interview room, does most of the talking. And the door to the room they are in is left a few inches open the entire time. Thane is not in any way restrained. For the first 15 minutes or so of this interview, things are pretty chill and they talk about all kinds of different things, even kind of lightheartedly. Keegan tells Thane he is not under arrest and he is free to go if he wants. This is multiple times this has been said to him. Just keep that in the back of your mind for later. Thane responds that he would be shocked if he was under arrest. He is just there to cooperate. Now is when Detective Keegan reads the Miranda warnings and he asks Thane if he understands this. Thane replies that he understands that it probably means, or that it does mean, that he can plead the fifth. Thane follows it up by asking, do I need to talk to a lawyer? Keegan tells him that's up to Thane. Instead of asking for a lawyer at that part, that point, Thane agrees to answer Keegan's questions. So it is an hour and a half into this interview before Keegan informs Thane that they have a problem. What is that problem? The problem is this. The police have Thane's fingerprints and DNA on items at the crime scene. This means that Thane's statement to them earlier that he had, he had been at Jeff Ryan's residence, but not since two weeks ago, is a little less than credible. Thane is making some concessions to Keegan's further questions, and at one point he says, you know more than I do. Here is Keegan's response, quote, I know everything, and soon you're going to know that I know that you know. It's a little dance we're doing, but you know that I know, end quote. Circle back to Robert Strout. 
At the same time police are interviewing Thane, other police go and search Robert Strout's house in Orient. Remember, Strout is the father of Jeff Ryan's ex-girlfriend who Thane was living with. The police are thinking that Strout might have given Thane a helping hand. And they want to look for anything that might indicate that Strout helped Thane in the commission of the murders. July 2nd, 2010, the same day they arrest Thane, police find a knife in a muddy bog in Orient. Naturally, they're thinking maybe this is the knife used to commit the triple homicide. In fact, while they are in the process of looking for a weapon in the bog, Thane is busy telling police back in the interview room that Robert Strout had given him a ride to the bog so he could toss a critical piece of evidence. You're confused because I didn't tell you what he is admitting back in the interview room. Little teaser. So let's go back. Back in the interview room. After a couple of coffee and smoke breaks, Thane's demeanor changes. He basically says, your search is over. He then confesses to killing Jeffrey and Jesse Ryan and Jason DeHaan. He is charged at that point with three counts of murder and one count of arson. Thane waives extradition and is taken back to Maine. Turns out, Thane did get more help from Robert Stout, Strout excuse me, than just a ride to dump the knife in the bog. Robert Strout, who was 65 at the time this all happened, pled guilty to hindering apprehension and to arson. Strout tells authorities that he helped Thane set fire to Ryan's pickup truck that Thane stole, and he'd also helped to hide other evidence at the crime scene. He also provided a sanctuary for Thane by taking him to New Hampshire where Strout's son lived. So I mentioned uh, there's a video of that interrogation, so let's go back to that interview in the video. Like I said, things were initially chill, but after coming back from one of those smoke breaks, Thane asks for a coffee, which they get him. While Keegan is getting it, Thane is in the room with Stoudemire. For the first time, Thane starts showing some emotion. He starts crying a bit and even comes out and says, this is the first time I've cried. Now, I don't know whether he means it's the first time he's ever cried or if he is talking in connection with the case they're questioning him on. I'm guessing the latter. But let me tell you, the video quality is weird, like it's got a rose filter. But even so, it's very strange to watch. Dean Ormsby isn't, he isn't unattractive. He's a fairly good-looking young man, and he just seems very calm. You don't listen to him and feel like, wow, he's a monster. Until he starts talking details, and then the calmness seems very wrong. But it is still hard to reconcile the crime with the guy you see on the screen. Anyway... Keegan comes back in with the coffee for Thane, and he sits back down. He asks Thane again at that point if he understands his rights. Thane says yes. He also says that yes, he will answer questions. Keegan asks him where he would like to start, and Thane says, wherever you want to. Keegan then asks, when did you go up there? Thane says, Tuesday night around 6 or 7. 
Egan asks if Jason was there and the answer is yes. Thane is asked, is that the first time that you ever met Jason? And Thane said, yes, it was. So Jason and Jesse being there is the absolute epitome of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Jesse normally was with his mother and Jason just happened to stop by. Very, very sad. At this point, Thane asks Keegan, how much detail do they want to which Keegan says as much as you can. Thane sits up straight, sets his coffee down, and says this, quote, I'm already guilty, so I might as well. I am going to summarize the information that Thane gives police. Thane rides his bicycle to the trailer with the intention of killing Jeff Ryan and some other man. The reason he gives is that Jeff Ryan is a drug dealer and both men are bad people. He said he felt justified in killing those two men because maybe something good could grow from basically removing them from this world. So he is at Jeff's trailer and Thane tells him that he's thinking about camping out in the woods for the winter. He's going to build himself a hut, which is weird. Who wants to live in a hut in the woods in the winter, but whatever. Jeff at this point says, well, I have some nails you can use. Jeff takes him out to a shed to show him the nails. And when they get into the shed, without saying a word, nothing, he immediately stabs Jeff in the back. Jeff drops and Thane turns around and leaves the shed and goes back to the trailer. He stabs Jason. Now, Jason's found in the bushes. One article I read says Jason was stabbed in the house. So maybe he was stabbed in the house and his body was dragged outside. I don't get that impression. I think maybe he was outside of the trailer when he was attacked. But regardless, Jason is stabbed. Ten-year-old Jesse runs to a back room. And this is Thane's words on the interview tape. Quote, Jesse was the quickest. End quote. So Thane says he chased the little boy. And when he got to him, Jesse says... I'm scared. That breaks my heart to even hear as a mother. I can't imagine it. This poor little boy. So now at this point in the video, it kind of jumps forward. So there are no details about the killing of Jesse. I don't know if they cut it out. If it, I don't know. But to be honest with you, I'm just fine with that. I could have gone out onto the internet to dig deeper, but I really think it's enough to know a 10-year-old boy lost his life. Enough said. Egan at one point asked Thane what he imagined as the best possible outcome to this situation. And answer it the first time he's asked. He has asked then, what are the police supposed to tell the families? What are they supposed to tell Jesse's mother? And Thane admits that saying he's sorry isn't good enough. He also says it wasn't personal. Like that's going to mean anything to a grieving mother. At some point, Keegan get, gets up and he leaves. He's got a notebook with him. Then he comes back in and he says, I forgot to have you sign and date this, this notebook paper. I'm guessing then it's the confession that they've been writing down as Thane is talking to them. So Keegan gets him to sign it and date it and leaves again. Thane looks towards the camera, which Detective Stoudemire is sitting beneath and offers up the answer to the question, what is the best possible outcome? This is the gist of what he said. 
Good things can grow from where evil is destroyed. It's possible the families of the victims will grow closer and stronger and that Jason's children might be better off without their father. As for the boy, Thane says, now meaning 10-year-old Jesse, quote, he was so young, too young. But from what I understand, he too was well on his way to being like his father, end quote. A few comments from me at this point. How in the hell would Jason's children be better off without him? Thane admitted to police he had never met Jason before that night. The night he killed him, almost cutting off his head by slicing his throat, was the first time he'd ever laid eyes on Jason. So how does he know Jason's children will be better off without him? And then to follow it up saying that a 10-year-old boy was well on his way to being like his father is ludicrous. I couldn't find any proof that Jeff Ryan was a drug dealer. And even if he was, how on earth do you say a 10-year-old is turning into his dad? It's ridiculous through and through. I don't know if Thane was just trying to find some justification for killing the boy or what, but I honestly think he's either delusional or stupid. Maybe both. Now, because I enjoy keeping things confusing, let's throw some wrinkles into what we know so far. According to an article at Boston.com by Clark Canfield, dated July 12, 2010, the killings were potentially motivated by a drug debt. Robert Strout says that Thane's father claimed that Jeff Ryan owed him a drug debt of $10,000. Thane went to Ryan's to collect that debt owed to his dad. Irony, anyone? Remember, Thane told the cops he removed some bad people from the world, meaning drug dealers. The fact that Ryan supposedly owed his own father ten grand related to drugs wouldn't that make his own father one of those bad guys? We're back to delusional or stupid again. Moving on, Thane's mother was good friends with the Strout's daughter, which is how Thane ended up living with them for a few weeks. Both Robert and Joy Strout were disabled and Thane was helping them out by cooking and cleaning. He also apparently helped take care of, they had birds like pheasants and quails and some other birds, and Thane would take care of those for them. The Strout said that Thane was polite and helpful. He didn't drink. He rolled his own smokes. Once in a while, he smoked marijuana, but he pretty much just stayed there with them all of the time. But they saw a different Thane on the evening of June 22nd when he returned on his bicycle to their place with blood on his shoes, pants, and shirt. According to Robert Strout, he only helped Thane after the fact because he was afraid for his life. For what it's worth, Strout was never charged with anything. Earlier, I said he pled to something, but he was never charged. He did take Thane to, I think it was his daughter's, to burn clothes in a furnace. And he took him and or helped him to burn the pickup truck that he stole from Jeff. He also did help him ditch the knife. Those are facts. Whether he helped him because he was afraid or because he wanted to, we will probably never know. As we talked about earlier, there was Thane's statement to the police about Ryan being a bad person. 
We have Strout claiming Thane went to collect a $10,000 debt Ryan owed to his dad. Those, those are a potential couple of potential motives. Jake DeHaan, Jason's brother, remember the one that went to the trailer and saw the blood, offered up this theory. At some point, Thane showed some interest in Jeff Ryan's 16-year-old daughter, who was living with her mother. Thane was told to stay away from the girl. Not surprised. He was 20. And who really wants a 20-year-old trying to date their 16-year-old daughter? Anyway, that's yet another option for motive. I couldn't find any indication that Thane ever really gave them the true motive, other than they were bad men scenario. Joy Strout, Robert Strout's wife, said this, quote, All I can say is that the Thane that was here at our house helping us when we were sick is not the person that went up to the trailer and killed those people. I don't know why and I don't know how, end quote. So originally Thane pled guilty, I'm sorry, pled not guilty, and the court appointed him counsel and ordered a mental examination. In May of 2011, Thane changes his not guilty pleas to include pleas of not criminally responsible by reason of insanity. In the end, he was convicted of all three murders and given three life sentences. Years later, he would appeal saying that the detectives interviewed him even after he requested a lawyer. Remember when I said, keep it in the back of your head, Keegan and Stoudemire on many different occasions, and it's on tape, offered him counsel told him he did not have to answer their questions, so on and so forth. So not going to buy it. Neither did the courts. Ultimately, the convictions were upheld. And I say good. So that will wrap it up for this episode of Crime Biscuit. Hang tight for the final crumb. Next week's episode is recorded and ready to go. But the week after that, we're going to embark on a new adventure. I'm calling it The State of Murder. Alphabetically. We are going to go through all 50 states and cover a case, or cases, in each one. Should be interesting. In the meantime, follow me on Facebook or on Instagram, or send me an email at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Here's your final crumb. Somewhere in the back of your mind, do you think you can improve the world by removing people you consider bad from it just because you want to? You need to take a long, hard look in the mirror, my friend, and then go get yourself some counseling. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.